0: Essays in Experimental Logic by John Dewey. Chapter 5 The Objects of Thought. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the foregoing discussion, particularly in the last chapter, we were repeatedly led to recognize that thought has its own distinctive objects. At times, Lotza gives way to the tendency to define thought entirely in terms of modes and forms of activity, which are exercised by it upon a strictly foreign material. But two motives continually push him in the other direction. One, thought has distinctive work to do, one which involves a qualitative transformation of at least the relationships of the presented matter. As fast as it accomplishes this work, the subject matter becomes somehow thought subject matter. As we have just seen, the data are progressively organized to meet thought's ideal of a complete whole, with its members interconnected according to a determining principle. Such progressive organization throws backward doubt upon the assumption of the original total irrelevancy of the data and thought forms to each other. 2. A like motive operates from the side of the subject matter. As merely foreign and external, it is too heterogeneous to lend itself to thought's exercise and influence. The idea, as we saw in the first chapter, is the convenient medium through which lotsa passes from the purely heterogeneous psychical impression or event, which is totally irrelevant to thought's purpose and working, over to a state of affairs which can reward thought. Idea as meaning forms the bridge from the brute factuality of the psychical impression to the coherent value of thought's own content. We have, in this chapter, to consider the question of the idea or content of thought from two points of view. First, the possibility of such a content, its consistency with Lot's fundamental premises. Secondly, its objective character, its validity and test. 1. The question of the possibility of a specific content of thought is the question of the nature of the idea as meaning meaning is the characteristic object of thought we have thus far left unquestioned Lotz's continual assumption of meaning as a sort of thought unit the building stone of thought's construction in his treatment of meaning Lotz's contradictions regarding the antecedents data and content of thought reach their full conclusion he expressly makes meaning to be the product of thought's activity and also the unreflective material out of which thoughts operations grow this contradiction has been worked out in accurate and complete detail by Professor Jones. He summarizes it as follows. No other way was left to him, Lotze, except this of first attributing all to sense and afterwards attributing all to thought, and finally of attributing it to thought only because it was already in its material. This seesaw is essential to his theory. The elements of knowledge as he describes them can subsist only by the alternate robbery of each other. We have already seen how strenuously Lotze insists upon the fact that the given subject matter of thought is to be regarded wholly as the work of a physical mechanism, without any action of thought. But Lotze also states that if the products of the physical mechanism are to admit of combination in the definite form of a thought, they each require some previous shaping to make them into logical building stones, and to convert them from impressions into ideas. Nothing is really more familiar to us than this first operation of thought the only reason why we usually overlook it is that in the language which we inherit it is already carried out and it seems therefore to belong to the self-evident presuppositions of thought not to its own specific work and again judgments can consist of nothing but combinations of ideas which are no longer mere impressions every such idea must have undergone at least the simple formation mentioned above such ideas are Lotze goes on to urge already rudimentary concepts That is to say, logical determinations. The obviousness of the logical contradiction of attributing to a preliminary specific work of thought exactly the condition of affairs, which is elsewhere explicitly attributed to a psychical mechanism prior to any thought activity, should not blind us to its import and relative necessity. The impression, it will be recalled, is a mere state of our own consciousness, a mood of ourselves. As such, it has simple de facto relations as an event to other similar events. But reflective thought is concerned with the relationship of a content or matter to other contents. Hence, the impression must have a matter before it can come at all within the sphere of thought's exercise. How shall it secure this? Why, by a preliminary activity of thought which objectifies the impression. Blue as a mere sensuous irritation or feeling is given a quality. The meaning blue, blueness, the sense impression is objectified. It is presented no longer as a condition which we undergo, but as something which has its being and its meaning in itself, and which continues to be what it is, and to mean what it means, whether we are conscious of it or not. It is easy to see here the necessary beginning of that activity which we above appropriated to thought as such. It has not yet got so far as converting coexistence into coherence. It is first to perform the previous task of investing each single impression with an independent validity, without which the latter opposition of their real coherence to mere coexistence could not be made in any intelligible sense. This objection, which converts a sensitive state into a sensible matter to which the sensitive state is referred, also gives this matter position, a certain typical character. It is not objectified in a merely general way, but is given a specific sort of objectivity. Of these sorts of objectivity, there are three mentioned, That of substantive content, that of an attached, dependent content, and that of an active relationship connecting the various contents with each other. In short, we have the types of meaning embodied in language in the form of nouns, adjectives, and verbs. It is through this preliminary formative activity of thought that reflective or logical thought has presented to it a world of meanings ranged in an order of relative independence and dependence and arranged as elements in a complex of meanings whose various constituent parts mutually influence one another's meanings. As usual, Lotze mediates the contradiction between material constituted by thought and the same material just presented to thought by a further position so disparate to each that, taken in connection with each by turns, it seems to bridge the gulf. After describing the prior constitutive work of thought as above, He goes on to discuss a second phase of thought which is intermediary between this and the third phase, viz. reflective thought proper. This second activity is that of arranging experienced quails in series and groups, thus ascribing a sort of universal or common somewhat to various instances, as already described. On one hand, it is clearly stated that this second phase of thought's activity is in reality the same as the first phase, since all objectification involves positing, since positing, Involves distinction of one matter from others, and since this involves placing it in a series or group in which each is measurably marked off, as to its degree and nature of its diversity, from each other. We are told that we are only considering a really inseparable operation of thought, from two different sides. First, as the effect which objectifying thought has upon the matter as set over against the feeling subject. Secondly, the effect which this objectification has upon the matter in relation to other matters. Afterward, however, these two operations are declared to be radically different in type and nature. The first is determinate and formative. It gives ideas the shape without which the logical spirit could not accept them. In a way, it dictates its own laws to its object matter. The second activity of thought is rather passive and receptive. It simply recognizes what is already there. Thought can make no difference where it finds none already in the matter of impressions. The first universal as we saw can only be experienced in immediate sensation it is no product of thought but something that thought finds already in existence the obviousness of this further contradiction is paralleled only by its inevitableness thought is in the air is arbitrary and wild in dealing with meanings unless it gets its start and cue from actual experience hence the necessity of insisting upon thoughts activity as just recognizing the contents already given but, on the other hand, prior to the work of thought, there is to lots of no content or meaning. It requires a work of thought to detach anything from the flux of sense irritations and invest it with a meaning of its own. This dilemma is inevitable to any writer who declines to consider as correlative the nature of thought activity and thought content from the standpoint of their generating conditions in the movement of experience. Viewed from such a standpoint, the principle of solution is clear enough. As we have already seen, the internal dissension of an experience leads to detaching certain factors previously integrated in the concrete experience as aspects of its own qualitative coloring, and to relegating them, for the time being, pending integration into further immediate qualities of a reconstituted experience, into a world of bare meanings, a sphere qualified as ideal throughout. These meanings then become the tools of thought in interpreting the data just as the sense qualities which define the presented situation are the immediate matter for thought the two as mutually referred are content that is the datum and the meaning as reciprocally qualified by each other constitute the objective of thought to reach this unification is thought's objective or goal every successive cross-section of reflective inquiry presents what may be taken for granted as the outcome of previous thinking and as determinant of further reflective procedure Taken this defining the point reached in the thought function, and serving as constituent unit in further thought, it is content or logical object. Lotz's instinct is sure in identifying and setting over against each other the material given to thought, and the content which is thought's own building stone. His contradictions arise simply from the fact that his absolute non-historic method does not permit him to interpret this joint identity and distinction in a working and hence relative sense. 2. The question of how the existence of meanings or thought contents is to be understood merges imperceptibly into the question of the real objectivity or validity of such contents the distinction for Lotze is the now familiar one so far as his logic compels him to insist that these matters are the possession and product of thought since thought is an independent activity the ideas are merely ideas there is no test of objectivity beyond the thoroughly unsatisfactory and formal one of their own mutual consistency in reaction from this, Lotze is thrown back upon the idea of these contents as the original matter given in the impressions themselves. Here, there seems to be an objective or external test by which the reality of thought's operations may be tried. A given idea is verified or found false, according to its measure of correspondence with the matter of experience as such. But now we are no better off. The original independence and heterogeneity of impressions and of thought is so great that there is no way to compare the results of the latter with the former. We cannot compare or contrast distinctions of worth with bare differences of factual existence. The standard or test of objectivity is so thoroughly external that by original definition it is wholly outside the realm of thought. How can thought compare meanings with existences? Or again, the given material of experience apart from thought is precisely the relatively chaotic and unorganized. It even reduces itself to a mere sequence of psychical events. What sense is there in directing us to compare the highest results of scientific inquiry with the bare sequence of our own states of feeling? Or even with the original data whose fragmentary and uncertain character was the exact motive for entering upon scientific inquiry? How can the former in any sense give a check or test of the value of the latter? This is professedly to test the validity of a system of meanings by comparison with that whose defects call forth the construction of the system of meanings. Our subsequent inquiry simply consists in tracing some of the phases of the characteristic seesaw from one to the other of the two horns of the now-familiar dilemma. Either thought is separate from the matter of experience, and then its validity is wholly its own private business, or else the objective results of thought are already in the antecedent material, and then thought is either unnecessary, or else has no way of checking its own performances. 1. Lotze assumes, as we have seen, a certain independent validity, in each meaning or qualified content taken in and of itself blue has certain meanings in and of itself and it is an object for consciousness as such not merely its state or mood after the original sense irritation through which it was mediated has entirely disappeared it persists as a valid meaning moreover it is an object or content of thought for others as well thus it has a double mark of validity in the comparison of one part of my own experience with another And in the comparison of my experience as a whole with that of others here we have a sort of validity which does not raise at all the question of metaphysical reality Lotze thus seems to have escaped from the necessity of employing as check or test for the validity of ideas any reference to a real outside the sphere of thought itself such terms as conjunction franchise constitution algebraic zero etc claim to possess objective validity Yet none of these professes to refer to a reality beyond thought. Generalizing this point of view, validity or objectivity of meaning means simply that which is identical for all consciousness. It is quite indifferent whether certain parts of the world of thought indicate something which has beside an independent reality outside of thinking minds, or whether all that it contains exists only in the thoughts of those who think it, but with equal validity for them all. So far, it seems clear sailing difficulties however show themselves the moment we inquire what is meant by a self-identical content for all thought is this to be taken in a static or in a dynamic way that is to say does it express the fact that a given content or meaning is de facto presented to a consciousness of all alike does this coequal presence guarantee an objectivity or does validity attach to a given meaning or content in the sense that it directs and controls the further exercise of thinking and thus, the formation of further new objects of knowledge, the former interpretation is alone consistent with Lotze's notion that the independent idea as such is invested with a certain validity or objectivity. It alone is consistent with his assertion that concepts precede judgments. it alone, that is to say, is consistent with the notion that reflective thinking has a sphere of ideas or meanings supplied to it at the outset. but it is impossible to entertain this belief. The stimulus which, according to Lotza, goads thought on from ideas or concepts to judgments and inferences, is, in truth, simply the lack of validity, of objectivity in its original independent meanings or contents. A meaning as independent is precisely that which is not invested with validity, but which is a mere idea, a notion, a fancy, at best a surmise which may turn out to be valid. And of course this indicates possible reference a standpoint to have its value determined by its further active use. Blue, as a mere attached floating meaning, an idea at large, would not gain in validity simply by being entertained continuously in a given consciousness, or by being made at one and the same time the persistent object of attentive regard by all human consciousnesses. If this were all that were required, the chimera, the centaur, or any other subjective construction could easily gain validity. Christian science has made just this notion the basis of its philosophy. The simple fact is that in such illustrations as blue, franchise, conjunction, Lotze instinctively takes cases which are not mere independent and detached meanings, but which involve reference to a region of experience, to a region of mutually determining social activities. The conception that reference to a social activity does not involve the same sort of reference of a meaning beyond itself that is found in physical matters and hence may be taken quite innocent and free of the problem of reference to existence beyond meaning, is one of the strangest that has ever found lodgment in human thinking. Either both physical and social reference, or neither is logical. If neither, then it is because the meaning functions as it originates in a specific situation which carries with it its own tests. Lutz's conception is made possible only by unconsciously substituting the idea of an object as a content of thought for a large number of persons, or a de facto somewhat for every consciousness, for the genuine definition of object as a determinant in a scheme of activity. The former is consistent with Lotz's conception of thought, but wholly indeterminate as to validity or intent. The latter is the test used experimentally in all concrete thinking, but involves a radical transformation of all Lotz's assumptions. A given idea of the conjunction of the franchise, or of blue, is valid not because everybody happens to entertain it, but because it expresses the factor of control or direction in a given movement of experience. The test of validity of idea is its functional or instrumental use in affecting the transition from a relatively conflicting experience to a relatively integrated one. If Lotz's view were correct, blue, valid once, would be valid always, even when red or green were actually called for to fulfill specific conditions. This is to say validity really refers to rightfulness or adequacy of performance in an asserting of connection, not to a meaning as contemplated in detachment. If we refer again to the fact that the genuine antecedent of thought is a situation which is disorganized in its structural elements, we can easily understand how certain contents may be detached and held apart as meanings or references, actual or possible. We can understand how such detached contents may be of use in effecting a review of the entire experience and as affording standpoints and methods of a reconstruction which will maintain the integrity of behavior we can understand how validity of meaning is measured by reference to something which is not mere meaning by reference to something which lies beyond it as such viz the reconstruction of an experience into which it enters as method of control that paradox of ordinary experience and of scientific inquiry by which objectivity is given alike to matter of perception and to conceived relations to facts and to laws affords no peculiar difficulty, because the test of objectivity is everywhere the same. Anything is objective insofar as, through the medium of conflict, it controls the movement of experience in its reconstructive transition. There is not first an object, whether of sense perception or of conception, which afterwards somehow exercises this controlling influence. But the objective is any existence exercising the function of control. It may only control the act of inquiry. It may only set on foot doubt but this is direction of subsequent experience and insofar is a token of objectivity it has to be reckoned with so much for the thought content is meaning or having a validity of its own it does not have it as isolated or given or static it has it in its dynamic reference its use in determining further movement of experience In other words the meaning having been selected and made up with reference to performing a certain office in the evolution of a unified experience can be tested in no other way than by discovering whether it does what it was intended to do or what it purports to do two Lotze has to wrestle with this question of validity in a further respect what constitutes the objectivity of thinking as a total attitude activity or function according to his own statement The meanings or valid ideas are, after all, only building stones for logical thought. Validity is thus not a property for them and its independent existences, but of their mutual reference to each other. Thinking is the process of instituting these mutual references, of building up the various scattered and independent building stones into the coherent system of thought. What is the validity of the various forms of thinking which find expression in the various types of judgment and in the various forms of inference? Categorical hypothetical disjunctive judgment inference by induction by analogy by mathematical equation classification theory of explanation all of these are processes of reflection by which connection in an organized whole is given to the fragmentary meanings with which thought sets out what shall we say of the validity of such processes on one point Lotze is quite clear these various logical acts do not really enter into the constitution of the valid world the logical forms as such are maintained only in the process of thinking the world of valid truth does not undergo a series of contortions and evolutions paralleling in any way the successive steps and missteps succession of tentative trials withdrawals and retracings which mark the course of our own thinking Lotze is explicit upon the point that only the thought content in which the process of thinking issues has objective validity the act of thinking is purely and simply an inner movement of our own minds made necessary to us by reason of the constitution of our nature and of our place in the world. Here the problem of validity presents itself as the problem of the relation of the act of thinking to its own product. In his solution, Lotze uses two metaphors, one deriving from building operations, the other from traveling. The construction of a building requires of necessity certain tools and extraneous constructions stagings, scaffoldings, etc., which are necessary to effect the final construction But which do not enter into the building as such the activity has an instrumental though not a constitutive value as regards its product similarly in order to get a view from the top of a mountain this view being the objective the traveler has to go through preliminary movements along devious courses these again are antecedent prerequisites but do not constitute a portion of the attained view the problem of thought is activity as distinct from thought as content opens up altogether too large a question to receive complete consideration at this point. Fortunately, however, the previous discussion enables us to narrow the point which is an issue just here. The question is whether the activity of thought is to be regarded as an independent function supervening entirely from without upon antecedents and directing from without upon data or whether it marks the phase of the transformation which the course of experience, whether practical or artistic or socially affectional or whatever undergoes for the sake of its deliberate control if it be the latter a thoroughly intelligent sense can be given to the proposition that the activity of thinking is instrumental and that its worth is found not in its own successive states as such but in the result in which it comes to conclusion but the conception of thinking as an independent activity somehow occurring after an independent antecedent playing upon an independent subject matter and finally effecting an independent result presents us with just one miracle more i do not question the strictly instrumental character of thinking the problem lies not here but in the interpretation of the nature of the instrument the difficulty with Lotz's position is that it forces us into the assumption of a means and an end which are simply and only external to each other and yet necessarily dependent upon each other a position which whenever found is thoroughly self-contradictory Lots of vibrates between the notion of thought as a tool in the external sense, a mere scaffolding to a finished building in which it has no part nor lot, and the notion of thought as an immanent tool, as a scaffolding which is an integral part of the very operation of building, and which is set up for the sake of building activity, which is carried on effectively only with and through a scaffolding. Only in the former case can the scaffolding be considered as a mere tool. In the latter case, The external scaffolding is not the instrumentality. The actual tool is the action of erecting the building. And this action involves the scaffolding as a constituent part of itself. The work of building is not set over against the completed building as mere means to an end. It is the end, taken, in process or historically, longitudinally, temporally viewed. This scaffolding, moreover, is not an external means to the process of erecting but an organic member of it. It is no mere accident of language that building has a double sense, meaning at once the process and the finished product. The outcome of thought is the thinking activity carried on to its own completion. The activity, on the other hand, is the outcome taken anywhere short of its own realization, and thereby still going on. The only consideration which prevents easy and immediate acceptance of this view is the notion of thinking as something purely formal. It is strange that the empiricist does not see that his insistence upon a matter accidentally given to thought only strengthens the hands of the rationalist with his claim of thinking as an independent activity, separate from the actual make-up of the affairs of experience. Thinking as a merely formal activity exercised upon certain sensations or images or objects sets forth an absolutely meaningless proposition. The psychological identification of thinking with the process of association is much nearer the truth. It is indeed on the way to the truth. We need only to recognize that association is of matters or meanings, not of ideas as existences or events, and that the type of association we call thinking differs from casual fancy or reverie by control in reference to an end, to apprehend how completely thinking is a reconstructive movement of actual contents of experience in relation to each other there is no miracle in the fact that tool and material are adapted to each other in the process of reaching a valid conclusion were they external in origin to each other and to the result the whole affair would indeed present an insoluble problem so insoluble that if this were the true condition of affairs we never should even know that there was a problem but in truth both material and tool have been secured and determined with reference to economy and efficiency in effecting the end desired the maintenance of a harmonious experience The builder has discovered that his building means building tools and also building material. Each has been slowly evolved with reference to its fit employ in the entire function, and this evolution has been checked at every point by reference to its own correspondent. The carpenter has not thought at large on his building and then constructed tools at large, but has thought of his building in terms of the material which enters into it, and through that medium has come to the consideration of the tools which are helpful. This is not a formal question. But one of the place and relations of the matters actually entering into experience and they in turn determine the taking up of just those mental attitudes and the employing of just those intellectual operations which most effectively handle and organize the material thinking is adaptation to an end through the adjustment of particular objective contents the thinker like the carpenter is at once stimulated and checked in every stage of his procedure by the particular situation which confronts him A person is at the stage of wanting a new house. Well then, his materials are available resources. The price of labor, the cost of building, the state and needs of his family, profession, etc. His tools are paper and pencil and compass, or possibly the bank as a credit instrumentality, etc. Again, the work is beginning. The foundations are laid. This in turn determines its own specific materials and tools. Again, the building is almost ready for occupancy. The concrete process is that of taking away the scaffolding, clearing up the grounds, furnishing and decorating rooms, etc. The specific operation again determines its own fit or relevant materials and tools. It defines the time and mode and manner of beginning and ceasing to use them. Logical theory will get along as well as does the practice of knowing, when it sticks close by and observes the directions and checks inherent in each successive phase of the evolution of a cycle of experience. The problem in general of validity of the thinking process as distinct from the validity of this or that process arises only when thinking is isolated from its historic position and its material content three but Lotse is not yet done with the problem of validity even from his own standpoint the ground shifts again under his feet it is no longer a question of the validity of the idea or meaning with which thought is supposed to set out It is no longer a question of the validity of the process of thinking in reference to its own product it is the question of the validity of the product supposing after all that the final meaning or logical idea is thoroughly coherent and organized supposing it is an object for all consciousness as such once more arises the question what is the validity of even the most coherent and complete idea a question which arises and will not down We may reconstruct the notion of the Chimera until it ceases to be an independent idea and becomes a part of the system of Greek mythology. Has it gained in validity in ceasing to be an independent myth, in becoming an element in systematized myth? Myth it was, and myth it remains. Mythology does not get validity by growing bigger. How do we know the same is not the case with the ideas, which are the product of our most deliberate and extended scientific inquiry? The reference again to the content as the self-identical object of all consciousness proves nothing. The subject matter of a hallucination does not gain validity in proportion to its social contagiousness. According to Lotse, the final product is, after all, still thought. Now Lotse is committed once for all to the notion that thought, in any form, is directed by and at an outside reality. The ghost haunts him to the last. How, after all, does even the ideally perfect valid thought apply or refer to reality? its genuine subject is still beyond itself. At the last, Lotse can dispose of this question only by regarding it as a metaphysical, not a logical problem. In other words, logically speaking, we are at the end just exactly where we were at the beginning, in the sphere of ideas and of ideas only, plus a consciousness of the necessity of referring these ideas to a reality which is beyond them, which is utterly inaccessible to them, and which is out of reach of any influence which they may exercise, and which transcends any possible comparison with the results. It is vain, says Lotza, to shrink from acknowledging the circle here involved. All we know of the external world depends upon the ideas of it which are within us. It is, then, this varied world of ideas within us, which forms the sole material directly given to us. As it is the only material given to us, so it is the only material with which thought can end. To talk about knowing the external world through ideas which are merely within us is to talk of an inherent self-contradiction. There is no common ground in which the external world and our ideas can meet. In other words, the original separation between an independent thought material and an independent thought function and purpose lands us inevitably in the metaphysics of subjective idealism, plus a belief in an unknown reality beyond, which, although unknowable, is yet taken as the ultimate test of the value of our ideas. At the end, after all our maneuvering, we are where we began, with two separate disparates, one of meaning but no existence, the other of existence but no meaning. The other aspect of Lotz's contradiction which completes the circle is clear, when we refer to his original propositions and recall that at the outset he was compelled to regard the origination and conjunctions of the impressions, the elements of ideas as themselves the effects exercised by a world of things already in existence. He sets up an independent world of thought, and yet has to confess that both at its origin and at its termination, it points with absolute necessity to a world beyond itself. Only the stubborn refusal to take this initial and terminal reference of thought beyond itself, as having a historic or temporal meaning, indicating a particular place of generation, and a particular point of fulfillment, compels Lotze to give such objective reference a transcendental turn. When Lotze goes on to say that the measure of truth of particular parts of experience is found in asking whether, when judged by thought, they are in harmony with other parts of experience, when he goes on to say that there is no sense in trying to compare the entire world of ideas with a reality which is non-existent, excepting as it itself should become an idea, He lands where he might better have frankly commenced. He saves himself from utter skepticism only by claiming that the explicit assumption of skepticism, the need of agreement of a ready-made idea as such with an extraneous ready-made material as such, is meaningless. He defines correctly the work of thought as consisting in harmonizing the various portions of experience with each other. In this case the test of thought is the harmony or unity of experience actually effected the test of validity of thought is beyond thought just as at the outer limit thought originates out of a situation which is not dependent upon thought interpret this before and beyond in a historic sense as an affair of the place occupied and role played by thinking as a function in experience in relation to other non-intellectual experiences of things and then the intermediate and instrumental character of thought its dependence upon unreflective antecedents for its existence And upon a consequent experience where its final test becomes significant and necessary. Taken at large, apart from temporal development and control, it plunges us in the depths of a hopelessly complicated and self revolving metaphysic. End of chapter five.